Hello. You are listening to the podcast, A Badge Well Worn by James Mitchell. We will be discussing actual cases investigated and hear from investigators and prosecutors involved in those cases. Our goal is to captivate you and allow you to see real criminal investigations and court cases through the eyes of the people involved. These stories should keep you on the edge of your seat. Recording. I'm speaking with Tom Baines. Uh, Tom is a former prosecuting attorney in Northwest Indiana. He had over 48 years of experience as an attorney. He's received his undergraduate degree from Notre Dame University and his Dr. Jurisprudence from Indiana University in Bloomington, Indiana. Tom served as a deputy prosecutor in Lake County, Indiana for 13 years specializing in murder prosecutions and cases involving career criminals. In 1989, he jumped over on the dark side and joined the Lake County Public Defender's Office for both trial and appellate. Those are my words, by the way, Tom's. He is now the first assistant for that office. In other words, he runs the program. Tom has maintained a private practice in Maryville, Indiana, for close to 30 years with a focus on state and federal criminal defense. He was a city judge from 2000 to 2012, and he has been involved in two dozen death penalty cases, more than any other lawyer in northern Indiana, by the way. In September of 22, Tom presented, was presented with the Uncuff the Innocent Award by Purdue Northwest University for his decade-long pro bono work to exonerate inmate Willie Donald and cleared him of murder charges after 24 years in prison. Quite an accomplishment. Tom, welcome to our podcast. Um, did, I, did I cover everything uh, adequately? Thanks. Uh, today I wanted to talk to you about a case that you handled, and I mentioned in my book, which you're graciously showing on your, your end of the camera. Uh, I wanted to get a little point of view from you on, on that case. Um, the defendant's name was Lester Bergner. Do you recall that case, Tom? I sure do. It was one of the earlier ones you and I made case law in Indiana on the thing. It was uh, the case with a novel twist. And uh, I remember right, you first tried to get it filed the prosecutor's office at the time and fixing that, correct? Right. I'll lay a little bit of a foundation for this thing, uh, how it came to me, and then you can pick it up after I brought it over to you. I I was approached at the police department by a couple came in. It was a walk-in, and the lady uh, and her husband, her second husband, had uh, found a photograph album in what used to be the office of her ex-husband. And in this photograph album, there was a photograph of a child with a male penis in her mouth. The child appeared to be about three to five years old, somewhere in that range, and appeared to be in a a bed, and her eyes were closed, like she might have been sleeping. In any case, it was kind of a, a revolting kind of a photograph, and mother clearly was upset and wanted something done. Uh, 
problem that I saw initially was an identification issue. Little girl was not a problem, but uh, a male in the picture was going to be a problem. Anyway, uh, I'm going to let you get into that a little bit because that kind of unfolded in court um, after this case was filed. When I brought it into court, by the way, I took it in, and of course, I didn't. Ex- I really knew I had an uphill battle to get this filed because in Indiana, you have to establish a foundation for photographs. And that foundation usually consists of the person that took the picture has to say that the photograph accurately depicts what it's supposed to represent. And uh, in this case, the photographer was a defendant. And so we're not going to get a a foundation from him. So we had to find a way around that. And uh, that's where this thing gets interesting. So you want to pick it up from there, Tom? Yeah, the the obstacle to prosecution here was not factual. Uh, If I remember right, the picture was clear as a bell. Uh, It depicted a crime. There was no ambiguity to it. Uh, The little girl was performing a sex act on this adult male. As you mentioned, uh, there was uh, a little bit of circumstantial evidence required to identify who the male was, but she had that the obstacle toward prosecution here was legal. Indiana law at the time was the obstacle to going forward with this. So this can't throw a picture into a courtroom and expect it to be admitted as evidence. So the judge who acts as gatekeeper of evidence is going to require that there be some sort of witness, whether it's the photographer himself or some other witness to verify that the photograph is accurate because the witness has seen what's in the photograph with his or her own eyes and can say, therefore, this picture is genuine. You didn't have that. The little girl, I think she was four at the time, was too young to be a witness in court, and she didn't recall the event from any case. As you mentioned, it looked like she'd been woken up for this particular picture. So, and the man wasn't talking. The suspect, of course, was the woman's ex-husband, and he wasn't going to admit acknowledge that he took that particular photograph. So in the absence of a witness, this was going nowhere. I kind of understood why you first got rejected when you tried to get this filed. Yeah, it's uh, and by the way, kudos to you for jumping in and uh, dipping me out of the grease on this because uh, I had no place to go uh, after getting the case declined, and I totally understood why they were declining the case. And I understand the case law and the the rules of evidence involving photography, but I was uh, and still am uh, appreciative of the fact that you elected in the face of all those ad- adversarial issues to jump in and, and, and try to push this through in, in any case. Can you tell me, uh, we got into the trial. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about uh, how you got that evidence in and the judge and uh, some of the motions that were filed to protect uh, the defendant? Yeah, one of well, let me back up just a second. Uh, one of my defects is that uh, 
professional level is I'm easily bored. I'm always on the uh, lookout professionally for something new, something novel, something with a twist, which is how you interested me back in those days. Uh, it seemed to me there's something wrong here when you had a clear crime being committed and no clear way to prosecute. So if the obstacle was going to be the law, then it was time for you and I to change the law, which is kind of what we set out to do. If memory serves, you sent the photographs. There were two Polaroids. And you sent them off to the FBI lab in D.C. Um, and the analysts there, a crack photographic uh, examiner, Larry Bonus was the name, am I right? That's correct. Yeah, I remember him. Yeah, he took a look at the pictures and sent back a report saying, in his professional opinion, there was nothing fake about them. They were genuine. They were authentic. They had not been retouched or altered. In today's language, um, he would say they, they, they had not been photoshopped in any form or fashion, although there was no photoshop in those days. But he put a stamp of approval on the, on the two Polaroids as being authentic. So off we went to court. Uh, main obstacle was going to be convincing the judge. A few states out there, Indiana, not included, had um, developed some case law that said if you don't have a witness, then you can substitute technical testimony in place of the witness to authenticate a photograph. All that the silent witness theory and then. Theory was that if you had technical expertise that could show that the process of taking the photographs produced a genuine, unaltered image, then you could use that as a basis for admitting the photograph as evidence. Now, Indiana had not yet adopted that silent witness theory. They had not rejected it. It just simply case the issue one way or the other. Um, a few states had, California in particular, I remember finding some research, a few states had rejected it. So the question was going to be, could we get the judge to accept this new theory? Um, because if, if a photograph is admitted under the silent witness theory, then it speaks for itself, so to speak. Uh, it becomes its own kind of witness as to what happened. So we had a pretrial hearing. I remember extensive arguments. I remember extensive briefs. And the initial reaction from the trial judge, it was a good man named Jim Clement. He's now dead. He was skeptical. You know, he could see the skepticism uh, in deciding whether to admit this photograph as evidence. And he was skeptical until he saw it. And when he actually took a look at what, what he saw, he could almost see the change come over his face like a wave. And from that point on, he was on our side. He agreed that the evidence could come in, assuming Barry Moniz testified in front of the jury. And in some ways, I guess, our prosecution was downhill from that point on. Downhill in the sense of uh, we were prevailing. Uh, I'm going to jump back in here for a sec. One of the things that, from my point of view, 
during the course of the trial was we tried to get the jury to just uh, see the victim so that they could uh, get an idea, connect it with the photograph, and, and help on the ID part that it was her. And uh, obviously in Indiana, a child under a certain age is not a credible witness in court. Um, can you tell us a little bit about uh, the judge allowing the court, not allowing the victim to show up in court? Yeah, uh, I, th I think you were right. Uh, we believed it was a legitimate, it, it was legitimate on our part to try to show, display the little girl to the jury because she was in the picture. They had a right to see and verify that the person we claimed was in the picture was in fact this identified little girl. The judge saw it differently. His thinking was that the defense was not really contesting who the little girl was in the photograph. Therefore, showing her to the jury had no real relevance and might engender too much sympathy for her and for the prosecution. So he prohibited me from using an exhibit displaying her the jury or even being in the courtroom so she was effectively banished to the hallways. Now, mom was, was an essential witness. She's the one found the photographs. And mom was curious or wanted to stay in the courtroom to see the case as it unfolded. But what do you do with the little girl? She was only four years old at the time of her. Somebody had to watch her, and that, that became you, if I remember. You were caretaker of the child, for the most part, which led to this temple moment uh, where you and her and the jurors kind of bumped into each other or at least passed each other out in the hallways and in the courtroom, if I recall. That's what I learned after the fact. Is that true? Yeah, uh, I think that's that's a brief but adequate description of what happened. I mean, I little kids, uh, you know, four or five year old kids are pretty fidgety, and this little girl, she wasn't going to sit on a bench and take that sitting down, so to speak. But she wanted to go for a walk, so we walked the halls for a while, and next thing you know. I've got these 14 people walking by me with little jury tags on their clothing, you know, saying we're a juror, you know, don't talk to them. And they all kind of smiled and looked at this little girl and she waved at them and she smiled back at them and they looked at me and they, they had seen me in the courtroom. And so I knew I was a police officer investigating this case and helping you out with the trial. So I, I, I suppose they must have made a connection there. What do you, what do you think? Stuff like that happens in trials. Uh, jurors, uh, they're not doomed into the courtroom or transported like a Star Trek. And uh, they walk the hallways just like witnesses and civilians and lawyers and the public. So things like that happen. It was, uh, it certainly didn't disrupt the trial. Either. So what happened? What happened? What was it? 
as a result of the trial. Jury didn't have a whole lot of trouble convicting Mr. Bergner. Uh, he was in, he ended up uh, he was sentenced off to prison on the thing. The second battle, and you know, we had the battle getting the trial judge to agree to let the photographs in as evidence, uh, and we won that battle, of course. But that had precedent only for proceedings in that particular courtroom. There was going to be an appeal. And the question was, is this new Indiana theory about a silent witness, is it going to have statewide precedent because the Court of Appeals to Indianapolis uh, is going to put a stamp of approval on it? And it wasn't involved in the lawyering in that. Uh, a good lawyer from the Attorney General's office in Indianapolis took care of that portion. And we won at that level too, although it was closer than. I anticipated it was a two-to-one split in favor of the prosecution, and the silent witness theory then got the stamp of approval for statewide use. Decades since, I think it's been cited as precedent hundreds of times, not just in Indiana, but um, elsewhere in other states across the country. That was amazing. That's a little factoid that I didn't know. And I also didn't know the judge had been swayed by the photograph, although it does surprise me because it swayed us too. But um, it was just such a uh, shocking uh, picture. Um, yeah. going back, go ahead. The law often always doesn't track common sense. So, it was important to get that recognized as a legal principle. Uh, now, uh, to this day, I will uh, get occasional sarcastic thank yous from my defense colleagues uh, who get bit into that side when the principle uh, is used against them in defending somebody, but it, it's all about good nature. Speaking of good nature, uh... The defendant offered kind of a uh, unusual defense self. You want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. He called his current wife. As you mentioned earlier, the ex-wife is the one who brought the photographs to your attention. At the time of the trial, he agreed And uh, his current wife was a witness who said, that's not him in the photographs. And I know it's not him in the photographs. Again, it, he was visible only between the knee and the, and the chest. And she said, that's not him because he's not that big. She was not talking about his overall body size. She was talking about one particular aspect of his uh, body. And if you catch my drift. Yeah. Uh, I remember thinking at the time, Oh, this is going to get tacky because, of course, I couldn't let that claim go unchallenged. I had to cross-examine the woman. How do you do so without it uh, becoming tacky? And uh, the answer to that was, of course, you can't. Uh, so it was a tacky cross-examination, but uh, the jury didn't have much trouble rejecting her claim. I know that particular defense, though, prompted a, 
and then ribald Dr. Kilmer between you and I after the fact. Yeah, the, the gallows humor, uh, not to take anything away from this awful crime and the, and the poor victim involved, we our sympathies go out, but sometimes uh, we see the most ridiculous, outrageous things and, and uh, you just try to, to rationalize it. But uh, yeah, I know, I know there is even discussion of having a penis lineup at one point. That didn't sound like something that uh, Judge Clement would go for. That speaking of poor victim, uh, which is uh, a real this case involving California, you got a call from the authorities out there a couple of years after the trial, not long at all. Yeah. And they were a little background here. Uh, the ex wife who had brought the pictures to your attention, the mother of the little girl. She'd remarried, and she remarried a man named Robert Diaz, if I have it correctly. I believe that's it, yeah. And then he moved out to California. And a few years after the trial, you got a call from the California authorities. They were looking at Diaz. Uh, He was a nurse. as one of those so-called angels of death, the caregivers who take life instead of Save lives. He was a nurse who was giving life pain and killing patients. And what were the numbers? He was suspected of killing dozens of patients under his care, was he not? 33. 33 uh, elderly patients that uh, were in a critical care unit where he worked midnight shift. Yeah, they sent out. the prosecutor and one of his lead investigators came to visit our jurisdiction. They wanted to talk to some of the hospitals where Diaz had been employed as a nurse when he lived back in uh, in Indiana. Um, and the prosecutor's office wanted me to kind of help them with the uh, move around in the jurisdiction and uh, see if we couldn't help them out. But uh, apparently... Most of the victims in California uh, had passed were cremated. Um, I think there was about seven or eight that they were able to exhume, and they found those traces of lidocaine in their in their system, in their uh, liver. And uh, they were able he to... Ended up, go oh, ahead. Did he? Yeah, he ends up on death row and uh, died there maybe 10, 12, 15 years ago, something like that. I always thought, what a star-crossed little girl that was. Her natural father molested her. Her stepfather is a serial killer. And one hopes that later life, she something good happened to her to compensate her for what she went through as a child. Uh, I mean, it's quite an upbringing. It also doesn't speak too highly of the mother's ability to pick a good mate. Uh, she's uh, struck out twice pretty badly. Tom, I appreciate you uh, sharing your experience in this trial. We had a lot of uh, cases we worked together. We're going to be following up on several of those cases. Uh, and. Uh, 
Is there anything else you'd like to add to what we talked about today in the last few minutes? Yeah, one last postscript, Mitch. Uh, Bergner himself died here in recent years. I never heard anything more about him or from him in the, um, the intervening years. Uh, whether he got any more trouble or not, I didn't hear. I think she did, frankly. Uh, maybe somebody else knows better. But the case itself lived on much longer than than most of the ones we handled. Mm -hmm. I'm glad you brought it to me. I'm glad we both took a chance. It certainly worked out well. Tom, thanks a lot. I'm going to go ahead and uh, wrap this up, and uh, we'll be talking again in about a week to do another podcast. Appreciate it. See you. I hope you found this episode of A Badge Well-Worn informative. We will be producing weekly new episodes featuring interesting stories as told by the people involved in the case. We look forward to sharing our experiences with you. We appreciate the sacrifices made by our protectors, the police. I hope you are inspired to get a copy of my book, A Badge Well-Worn, available on Amazon. Don't forget to reach out to me at our website, jem-books.com.